This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to EM Basic Essential Evidence. Today we'll be talking about a relatively recent article in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. The title of the article is Management of Minor Head Injury in Patients Receiving Oral Anticoagulation Therapy, a Prospective Study of a 24-Hour Observation Protocol. Once again, this was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, June 2012, and the first author is Dr. Vincenzo Mendetto. I probably mispronounced that, sorry. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. So here's the background on this issue. Patients on oral anticoagulants, such as warfarin, who sustain even a minor head injury, frequently get a non-contrast head CT as part of their workup because intracranial hemorrhage is common in these patients. Rates vary anywhere from 7 to 25%. Also, delayed intracranial hemorrhage up to a week later has been reported in these patients. So the question is, what is the utility of admitting patients on Coumadin with minor head trauma for further observation and a repeat head CT in 24 hours? So let's talk first about the study design. So this was a single-center prospective observational study. This means that patients were admitted to a single hospital and then followed to see their outcome. One important thing to remember is the difference between prospective and retrospective studies. Prospective means that you defined a set of study criteria ahead of time, found some way to quantify what you are studying, and then enrolled patients. This is in contrast to a retrospective study, which usually involves looking backwards in time through the patient's chart. A retrospective study is a lot less reliable than a prospective study because you can't be sure if all the data was collected correctly. In a prospective study, you create a data collection form that standardizes how the data is collected, and then you collect it in real time, so you know that it's correct. So back to the study. It's a prospective observational study where all patients 14 years of age or older with a minor hand injury with a GCS of 14 or 15 with no neurodeficits who were on Coumadin were evaluated with a non-contrast head CT in the ED. If the head CT was negative, and the patient remained without neurodeficits, they were admitted to an ED observation unit for neuro exams every four to six hours and a repeat head CT at the 24-hour mark. So let's talk about the results. 97 patients were enrolled, but 10 patients were admitted and declined the second head CT. These 10 patients all did well at 30 days, none were readmitted, and all were asymptomatic. This left 87 patients for analysis after the second head CT. Five patients had a positive repeat head CT with intracranial bleeding. So this is an incidence of 5.7%. With a delayed bleeding rate of 5.7%, the authors suggest that their evidence supports admission and repeat head CT scanning in these patients. However, only one of those five patients needed a neurosurgical procedure which is an instance of only 1.15% when you look at the entire study. If you include the 10 patients who declined the second head CT, the incidence of needing neurosurgery is only 1.03%. Two additional patients were admitted two and eight days later and had bleeding on a repeat head CT, but neither required neurosurgery. These two patients both had INRs above three. The author suggests more caution in patients with INRs above 3, but they didn't have any power to say this for sure because only 8 patients in the entire study had INRs above 3. So let's talk about the main points of this article. So this is an article that you will hear a lot of people talking about. 
Some have called this a practice changer, but I disagree. If you're interested in catching all delayed bleeding in these patients, then you should admit them. But should we really be doing that? If a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? If a patient has a little bleeding into their skull, but it doesn't give them any symptoms, should we care? The focus should be on how many patients needed something done about their intracranial hemorrhage. With a yield of 1.15% or lower for needing neurosurgery, should we be spending a massive amount of money on admitting these patients for observation and a repeat head CT? We see these patients a lot, and admitting all of them as a knee-jerk reaction would cost us a lot of money for a very low yield. At 1.15%, this yield is lower than most chest pain observation units. In an editorial on the same issue, a different author does some calculations that shows that it would cost about $1 million per quality life year saved in comparison to about $13,000 for a year of dialysis. If we had therapies to offer these patients with asymptomatic intracranial bleeding, then this method would be worth it. However, if our response to minor intracranial bleeding is to do nothing, then why find it in the first place? How many children are running around playgrounds each day, bonk their head with no one watching, never have a symptoms, and go on to be normal kids? How many would have had a small ditzel of blood on a head CT if we did it? How about two head CTs? Now let me add something in here. After I recorded this episode, I had a lively discussion over Twitter with several EM doctors, including Amal Matu. He pointed out that his own institution has had a few recent cases of patients with INRs between 3 and 7 who had minor head trauma. Their INR was not actively reversed, they were discharged, and they came back with bleeding, and at least one of them had a bad outcome. This scenario has to give us at least a little bit of pause to consider whether we may want to be more aggressive in those patients who have supertherapeutic INRs above 3. Unfortunately, this study only had a small percentage of patients who had INRs above 3, so we can't say from this study alone whether more caution is warranted in these patients. We will need a bigger study with more patients with INRs above 3 to answer this question sufficiently. For the moment, what I would say is that we should give more thought to admitting patients with INRs above 3 and realize that they are probably at higher risk for bad outcomes compared to patients who have therapeutic INRs between 2 and 3. Here's my rational approach for using this article. If the patient has a negative initial head CT and a normal neuro exam, both the presentation and at discharge, assess their living situation. If they live with someone who is reliable, who can bring them back to the hospital if something bad happens, then they should be okay to discharge. The patient's caregiver doesn't need to wake the patient up every few hours. They just need to be there in case the patient is doing worse. If the patient has a bad social situation where they live alone or they live with someone who can't keep an eye on them, then consider admitting them for observation or at least do a callback in 24 hours to make sure they are okay, similar to the way we call back culture results. The wrong thing to do is to read this article then think that you should be admitting all of these patients for observation in another CT scan. This would be a very expensive thing to do and have a very low yield for any intervention. I'll get off the soapbox for now. As you can tell, I have a strong opinion on this issue, but I think it's something we need to think about a lot before we go throwing boatloads of money at a rare problem when there are more logical ways around it. Please drop me a line or post a comment at eambasic.org and start a discussion on what you think about this article. 
Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for EM Basic Central Evidence, signing off.